Welcome back to the Trusted Visions Weekly Podcast. Sean, David, thank you for joining me. We, we're missing our beloved Deb. She's spending some, some quality time with family. Um, but welcome, gentlemen. Glad to have the, I guess we'll call ourselves the Three Musketeers. Does that work for you guys? <laughs> That's good. It's better than being called the Three Stooges. So, um, which Deb may call it. Yeah, Deb may call us that, but we'll, we'll leave that out since she's not here. We're going to continue on with this monthly topic. Last week, we talked about being a buyer of a practice um, and, you know, how to negotiate or find someone that's selling a practice and how to negotiate that price. The week prior, we talked about succession planning and the importance of that. All the broker dealers out there talk about the importance of succession planning. So to keep on track with this week, Sean and David and the viewers, we're going to talk about being a seller of a practice um, because while well, being a buyer is fun, it's, it's similar to going out and buying a car or a house, being a seller, it can become very time consuming and you're going to have hundreds of advisors that are, are bidding for your practice. So it can be overwhelming. And that's where firms like Trusted Visions come into play of being the consultant to sellers of those practices. A lot of financial advisors, OSJs and enterprise consider trusted visions or firms like ours as just out there recruiting. Well, there's a reason we're called trusted visions placement and consulting because we do do consulting work with a lot of advisors that are in, you know, specific situations that need some guidance and the experience of, of firms like ours. So David, I want to start with you of probably the first question a seller is going to have is how do I even figure out what my practice is worth? Um, what advice or, um, you know, guidance can you give an advisor that says, I don't even know where to start? <laughs> I think the best quote was back from a movie, show me the money, right? When you're looking at the selling a practice, show me the money, then we'll, we'll, we'll talk. But really it's all, a, you know, jokes aside, it's, it's, it's all about the income. When you look at value in your practice, it's all about the income. When you look at the basic valuations, when it comes to looking at, you know, looking at your individual book, if you're really transactional, uh, you're looking at one or two times your gross revenue, uh, looking at the overall value of your book. Now, if you're more advisory focused or you got a higher percentage of advisory business that make up your portfolio, your book of clients, then you can get to the two or three times of gross revenue. And that's, you know, the standard, you know, where do you, where do you start? That's one way where you can take some of the numbers and take a look at it. And when you start taking a little a little deeper dive into the valuation of your individual book, is look at your age of your clients. Uh, age of your clients is going to be a big factor on what that book is going to be valued at today, what it's going to be valued at 10 years from now or 20 years from now. So very important if you're in the industry is the age of your clients and geography. And when you're looking to sell your book of business or you're looking to sell your book, uh, do you have anybody that's local that's going to be able to manage and sufficiently manage your clientele inside your geography? That's uh, that's going to be a big deal when it comes to the evaluation, because if you get it from somebody from another state, geography is going to come into play and it could change your valuation. Then the growth of your book. Always take into consideration when you look at the value is the growth of your book year over year, trying to keep track of that, showing how what time and effort you put back into that business showing what the growth is going to be and then how the retention is going to be. You need to understand that anybody that's going to be interested in, in buying your book as a seller, you have to be confident that you're going to be able to retain a majority of your clientele inside of your book and be able to move that over effectively. So 
that's those are the really big factors that you got to take a look at. And first and foremost, you know, talking to us, talking to a consultant, but by far working with a third party valuation firm is going to be your first and biggest step. Go and talk to the experts. There's a number of them out in our industry that will help you kind of define what your book value looks like today. Uh, for example, FP Transitions, they've been doing it probably the longest. Everybody sees FP Transitions shows up when somebody wants to get a valuation of their book. Uh, and the biggest takeaway is get a value, get a value today. Uh, because what it looks, if you've got an established book of business, being getting an evaluation today is going to give you an idea of what it's worth today and what it could look like. Plus, it'll give you the roadmap necessary to kind of prepare your, your business or your book to be able to sell 10, 20, 15 years from now. It's going to give you a lot of opportunity to kind of adjust some of the models that you're, you've been working with on a day-to-day basis and what it's going to look like going forward. So by far, talk to the experts, look at the consultants and get a value. Getting a value gives you an understanding today of what it's going to be worth and you can get an understanding of what it may be worth when you're looking to sell your practice. If you don't have a valuation, you're, you're, kind of like everybody else out there that wants to buy a practice but is not prepared to do it. If you want to sell your practice, you don't know what evaluation of your practice is, then you're not prepared to sell either. Yeah, and and those are great points, David. I would say, you know, when you talk about get a value now, even if you're looking at 5, 10, 15 years down the road, in your opinion, is that because if you're more transactional, should you start considering going more advisory for that higher value? Absolutely. In most cases, when you're trying to sell a practice, absolutely. Everybody's going to look at the recurring income. And it's all about the income. And when you're looking at transactional business, that has to be recreated on a monthly or annual basis in a lot of cases. So transactional business sometimes can be a, a decent valuation. But when you're looking to sell your practice, the advisory side could be a huge part of the recurring income side. And that's going to help you. That's going to help you not only find and attract a better buyer in a lot of cases, but prepare you to the point where you can decide, okay, my value of my practice is A today. If I was able to make a few modifications to my practice, and maybe I don't want to be all advisory, I still want to be transactional. Mm -hmm. They'll give you the availability to say, well, if I push my advisory from 40% to 60 or maybe 70% of my overall business and grow the transactional along with it, your your valuation is going to continue to grow. And that's going to show that you put effort in to whoever you're selling it to shows, hey, I got a valuation 10 years ago. I got a valuation 20 years ago. So I've been keeping an eye on this so I can prepare my book of business to be able to be an attractive, uh, be an attractive book of business for a purchaser to buy. Right. Right. And David, one more question before we move on to the next part of this, this podcast. You spoke about client age being a factor in geography. What about number of clients when, when you have small accounts versus, you know, higher net worth clients. Does that make a difference if you have, let's just say, a thousand clients versus a hundred clients, but it's the same production? Uh, It can be. It's really digging into the meats and potatoes. If you've got a large client base and you've got a ton of small accounts, that's going to be, to be totally honest, a little bit more of a headache Mm -hmm. uh, for the, the purchaser of that individual book. A smaller book gives you the availability to, uh, to really be connected to transitioning that book over to a buyer. Uh, so it can be very effective on that side of it. But the downside, I always kind of see you know, those. There's always a plot. There's a pro and a con. 
Uh, when you've got less clients, you're more prone to risk if you lose a number of your larger clients during that transition of selling over your book, it could substantially impact uh, what your book is being uh, paid for uh, in that particular situation. So absolutely, when you're looking at number of clients, it's going to depend on the number of clients, number of high net worth clients, and then a number of small account of clients because a ton of small accounts is going to make a little bit more of a headache and could add to the expense of transitioning that book of business over to the new advisor. Right. Perfect. Well, thank you for that, David. Sean, the next part of this, and, and a lot of advisors will laugh, um, but we've seen this through our, you know, nearly a century of experience collectively amongst a team. When you're looking to sell your practice, it's it's going to be very similar to when press breaks about a broker-dealer being sold and, and changes or, or whatever it may be, you've got everybody out there calling you saying, hey, I want to buy it. I want to I want to buy it. So right, exactly. what guidance or advice could you give to an advisor that's selling their practice of how do you weed through the, the hundreds of advisors that are going to be calling you and how do you find that right buyer that makes sense for your practice? Sure, sure. How to find a buyer is a very intriguing question, right, that I'm going to answer while providing um, a few suggestions uh, based on my experience. Um, you know, first of all, I believe an advisor should look in-house. And I'm, I'm speaking relatively in-house, literally. Um, you know, if you have children, you have uh, you know, kids, uh, whether it's a he, she or them that may have an interest in this business, I think it's very important to begin cultivating those uh, relationships post-college. Um, I think any time prior to college, there may not be a lot of synergy there. But post-college, when, when your, uh, your kid is looking to establish their career, wealth management site may be a, a great fit. Um, so I believe it is a good idea for them to get acclimated after that time. Um, you know, and once that happens, I've seen so many go well when it's just a family oriented succession plan. Um, you know, you, you're talking high retention there. Obviously, that's not the case for everyone. But if that is, I would say start there, um, you, know, you know, with your your children. Another uh, suggestion I have, you know, is finding and growing a junior or grooming rather a junior advisor. Uh, throughout my years in the industry, I've witnessed a few succession plans where that would, that practice went extremely well. I've also assisted advisors in, uh, you know, with their search efforts to find a junior advisor. Um, with this practice, as an advisor, you're in the driver's seat, you know, with your search criteria, with your training methods, um, you know, with, with your hiring and affiliation, uh, with integrating the uh, junior you know, advisor with your clients and business practices. And then ultimately, uh, you know, the reason why you're doing that is to, to, you know, certainly submit that succession plan and ultimately passing that on to the junior advisor once they're comfortable. In those, uh, from my experience, in those practices, I, I've seen at least 100% retention, you wow. know, when that happens. Um, now, if those suggestions, you know, are just not our ideal, you know, for you. I would suggest, as Deb mentioned last week, consulting with your, your existing broker dealer to identify a buyer. Um, at this juncture, most firms have a business development team or practice management team, or at least a person there that you can speak with that can assist with identifying uh, a buyer. Now, uh, just speaking from experience, uh, you know, just because it's in-house, it may not be a good fit. 
but certainly I, I would start there. If none of those ideas work for you, then I will consult with a team like ours uh, here at Trusted Visions as we have relationships with multiple broker dealers. I have a real case scenario now where I have an advisor at a, at a firm that couldn't locate a, you know, a buyer within their broker dealer. They do not have a junior advisor nor kids. So, um, so with that, you know, I, you know, I conducted some, um, you know, due diligence on my end and, you know, to date they've had the seller and the potential buyers have great conversations and are looking to continue down the road. So I think those are just really the key you know, factors to mitigate the search you know, on behalf of the advisor, because the waters can get muddy if you just go out blind and, and you start, you know, you know, researching these third party vendors and they're sending you any and everyone. And you're, you know, as an advisor, you don't have the time to do that. You have to really stay focused on um, your practice. So I, I would say certainly utilize the, uh, you know, the research out there for you, the consultation out there for you in any of those areas that I just mentioned. It was a great point, Sean. What, one follow-up question I'm sure a lot of our audience would have is, how much time should you give yourself from the time that you want to sell your practice to it actually, you know, to you start finding those buyers, to weed through those buyers? Like, what's that time frame, in your opinion, of once you start, how long it would take realistically to actually be able to find the buyer and sell it? I mean, how much time should they plan for well, that's all relative. Um, I, in my humble opinion, I believe that an advisor should think about a succession plan sooner than later. Because once we start talking about bringing in the kids, if that's an option or a junior advisor, you're talking years at this point. You know, this is not a three to five year plan. This could be a 15, 20 year plan. So, um, so I do believe that you want to start thinking about a succession plan, you know, once you start growing your business. However, if you're, as I mentioned, if, if you're not in that situation and you're looking to sell uh, three to five years, you want to at least give yourself the maximum amount of time as possible. If it's five years, start today. You know, if it's 10 years, start today. So I guess my point is it shouldn't, I think the sooner the better. So without giving a you know time frame, as soon as possible is my time frame. Yeah, and it takes it back to that whole succession planning side of it. And we hear, I know all of us hear this every single day of an advisor saying, hey, I'm in my 70s. I'm going to do this until, you know, I'm probably going to die at my desk, right. um, which which is a great thought and, you know, great plan. But you never know what's going to happen as you become an aging advisor. Right. So having right. that sound succession plan in place and like you said, Sean, you know, having a plan in place of who that buyer is going to be is extremely important. And, and I always joke about it with you guys of, you know, it's amazing to me. So many advisors out there, you know, advise clients on having a plan should something have happen to right. them, right. but don't go through this process. And, right. and part of it is because they don't even know where to start or who to lean on to do it. And, and that's where, you know, to our audience, I strongly advise to Sean's point, going to the practice management team or the broker business development team within the broker dealer or working with a firm like ours, just to put that plan in place. It's okay if you don't know what you don't know. And, and we hope that through these podcast series, this is helping you, you know, to develop that plan. So great point, Sean. The next part of this podcast would be, you know, how do you even negotiate a price? Right. Um, and as we discussed last week, and I think Deb brought it up of, 
you know, you don't want to just go out there and try and sell for the highest price. The right fit of an advisor to carry on your legacy is much more important. And I know similar to selling a house, it's you have that, you know, that relationship that and that hold on, this is what I built. And you think that that increases the value. No offense, it doesn't. I understand there's that emotional cost that you're thinking, but when you're negotiating your price, you know, I always suggest back to not, not to steal your thunder, Sean, most broker dealers have someone in-house practice management or business development that can do an in-house valuation. Not that they do a bad job. I always suggest to get a second opinion out there of, you know, from an FP transitions or, or any of those that do the valuations, get a second opinion just so you have an apples to apples comparison of that valuation. Now, when you get that valuation, you may be awestruck or, or offended that it's not what I was expecting. When you have firms that are experts at these valuations, trust what they're doing. They're, they're not trying to have an I gotcha scenario of, hey, I'm trying to you know tell you it's worth a lot less. It's, it's not like a car lot, so to speak. Right. Um, right. And then when you talk about negotiating the price and the financing side of it, go into it with realistic expectations. Um, because to Sean's point, I think last week of, you know, if you're expecting 50, 60, 70 percent of that purchase price up front, you're probably not going to find or have, and, and this is strictly my opinion, you're probably not going to have the best advisor fit for your practice if you find someone that's willing to pay that. Um, and so go into it and you got to ask yourself, is the price more important than the legacy that I've built continuing on? And those are similar to the conversation we have when advisors say, hey, I want to get the most uh, upfront check from whatever broker dealer. Okay, we can do that and there's options out there, but here's the con, the downfalls to it versus finding a firm that's going to be competitive, but not the highest pay. So right. I would suggest going into it with realistic expectations right. of most advisors that are purchasing a practice will typically put 20, 25% down and then pay you over a period of time. Mm -hmm. You can either finance that yourself. I would suggest as the advisor that's selling the practice, if you finance it yourself, make sure you have an attorney review the purchase contract. Don't try and, th this is something, don't try and put together a Word document and just get two executed signatures. Um, there's a lot of ins and outs, and I helped with a couple last year, pretty large pra practices. Make sure you have an attorney review that contract um, because there's things like you want to make sure there's a non-solicit and non-compete in there that, that the seller can't go back after the clients. Um, you want to make sure should they default, here's the action that you should take. So make sure that you have that in place. If you don't want to finance it yourself, there are banks out there that specialize in financial advisors buying and selling practices that are well-versed. A good majority of the banks typically aren't going to understand the valuation and, and how to finance that, but there are some banks that specialize on that. So that would be my suggestions as it pertains to negotiating the price. Now, I figured for this last question, Sean, David, we could kind of round robin it um, rather than one of us covering it, is other things that an advisor that's selling their practice should consider before they sell their practice. So David, I'm gonna jump it over to you. One thing that you think an advisor should consider when selling their practice. For uh, for a seller 
And you, I think you hit the nail on the head when you talk about emotion. Uh, there's a lot of emotion with financial advisors out there when you come at looking at their book of business and what they've built for the last 10, 20, maybe in some cases, 50 years. It's kind of the same way I, I talk to people about classic cars. You know, there's a valuation that comes with a particular car and this is what it's worth and this is what the market is currently paying for. But as soon as there's an emotional tie uh, to that classic car, there's that very large emotional tie to that book of business and that practice that has been built, that can inherently affect you as a seller when you're looking at it. You've got to make sure that you kind of try to draw away from the emotional factor from it. And as you said, Jeremy, try to take the emotion out of it Try to take a look at it, digest it before you start having some of those conversations with people about what they're willing to pay and what you're willing to sell it for, because you could absolutely hurt the deal uh, by either throwing out absurd numbers that just nobody in their right mind would pay for. And now you've lost a potential buyer in that particular situation. So it is one of those things that I tell people, take emotion out of it, be prepared work with a consultant, work with your current broker dealer, work with somebody to get a better understanding of where you're at, because now you're getting more back into the world that we're used to dealing with, the financial side, the numbers, the financial numbers, what makes sense. So you can actually go and have those conversations because you don't want to lose an opportunity as much as you don't want to also lose out on not selling your practice for what it's worth. There's there's two sides of that. You can lose both ways. A lot of people always feel like I'm, I'm getting underpaid for my practice. But you could lose a potential incredible buyer, an incredible uh, factor, you know, a credible opportunity for somebody to come over, take over that practice and really, truly care about your clients and take that over and and really continue to work with your legacy on that side of it. So you, you don't want to burn a bridge as much as you also want to make sure that you also get compensated fairly for your your book of business. So it's it, 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 try to keep the emotions out of it as much as you can and understand there will be some. You just have to kind of pull back and look at the numbers and do the work. Right. Right. Perfect. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Sean, one thing that you would say an advisor should think about when selling their practice. I would say uh, think about uh, a strategic way of how to monetize your book of business. Um, obviously, you want to always err in the best interest of your clients. So I'm not suggesting you do anything other than that. But um, there are resources you can tap into. I know it's some broker dealers I represent in the past. They had business development offices there that actually help advisors monetize their book for succession planning purposes. So it could be some things within your book of business there that, that you haven't touched in, in years. Uh, that could be potential opportunities for you. There could be clients that you haven't spoke with in, in, in a while. That could be an opportunity for you. So I would say before you even decide to list um, you know, your practice, consult with um, someone in-house, uh, you know, find a way, find the best practices to where you could truly uh, just get the, the highest uh, amount for your business through monetizing internally. Absolutely. And I would say one other thing to, to consider, and, and we've, we've talked about this a lot, is I, the legacy that you've built as an advisor that should be first and foremost, because even after you retire, you your clients are still going to remember you. You've probably built personal relationships with them. And I'll never forget, I was working with a, a broker dealer, president and CEO, and, and he, the broker dealer I was with was trying to purchase their practice or purchase their broker dealer. And, and he chose the highest bidder. 
And I asked him six months later, we, we still talk regularly. I asked him six months later, I said, how do you feel now that you're, you're six months into it? And he said, it's the worst decision I ever made because my reputation has been tarnished by the advisors that I built relationships with because I went with the highest bidder. And, you know, similarly to when you're selling your practice, make it an interview process. Don't just start looking at offer sheets of who's going to buy your practice. Mm -hmm. Really understand what that advisor's plans are for your clients. Is, is he going to keep everything the same? Is he going to have the same or work to build the same personal relationship that you've built with these clients over the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years? Um, because the last thing you want is you've put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into your practice for the last 30 to 50 years. And you go into the sunset and look back and the practice that you put that blood, sweat, and tears into is tarnished right. because you didn't interview that advisor to make sure they bought into your business philosophy, your client approach, and, and you know, how you work with your clients. So that would be my suggestion. Um, for our audience, thank you again for, for viewing our, our podcast. Please don't hesitate to, to leave any comments on our LinkedIn or YouTube page. Should you want to discuss any of these topics with us in, in more detail, please don't hesitate to email us at info at trustedvisions.com. Um, David, Sean, thank you for being part of this. We will be back next week um, to continue on with, with this monthly topic of succession planning and buying and selling a practice.